This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 35. Sailing Through the Bosporus and the Black Sea. Far Away Moses. Melancholy Sebastopol. Hospitality Received in Russia. Pleasant English People. Desperate Fighting. Relic-hunting. How travelers form cabinets. We left a dozen passengers in Constantinople, and sailed through the beautiful Bosporus, and far up into the Black Sea. We left them in the clutches of the celebrated Turkish guide, Faraway Moses, who will seduce them into buying a shipload of otter of roses, splendid Turkish vestments, and all manner of curious things they can never have any use for. Murray's invaluable guide-books have mentioned Faraway Moses' name, and he is a made man. He rejoices daily in the fact that he is a recognized celebrity. However, we cannot alter our established customs to please the whims of guides. We cannot show partialities this late in the day. Therefore, ignoring this fellow's brilliant fame, and ignoring the fanciful name he takes such pride in, we called him Ferguson, just as we had done with all other guides. It has kept him in a state of smothered exasperation all the time, yet we meant him no harm. After he has gotten himself up regardless of expense, in showy baggy trousers, yellow pointed slippers, fiery fez, silken jacket of blue, voluminous waist-sash of fancy Persian stuff filled with a battery of silver-mounted horse-pistols, and has strapped on his terrible scimitar, he considers it an unspeakable humiliation to be called Ferguson. It cannot be helped. All guides are Fergusons to us. We cannot master their dreadful foreign names. Sebastopol is probably the worst battered town in Russia, or anywhere else. But we ought to be pleased with it, nevertheless, for we have been in no country yet where we have been so kindly received, and where we felt that to be Americans was a sufficient visa for our passports. The moment the anchor was down, the governor of the town immediately dispatched an officer on board to inquire if he could be of any assistance to us, and to invite us to make ourselves at home in Sebastopol. If you know Russia, you know that this was a wild stretch of hospitality. They are usually so suspicious of strangers that they worry them excessively with the delays and aggravations incident to a complicated passport system. Had we come from any other country, we could not have had permission to enter Sebastopol and leave again under three days. But as it was, we were at liberty to go and come when and where we pleased. Everybody in Constantinople warned us to be very careful about our passports, see that they were strictly en règle, and never to mislay them for a moment. And they told us of numerous instances of Englishmen and others who were delayed days, weeks, and even months in Sebastopol, on account of trifling informalities in their passports, and for which they were not to blame. I had lost my passport, and was travelling under my roommates who stayed behind in Constantinople to await our return. To read the description of him in that passport, and then look at me, any man could see that I was no more like him than I am like Hercules. So I went into the harbour of Sebastopol, with fear and trembling, full of a vague, horrible apprehension that I was going to be found out and hanged. But all that time my true passport had been floating gallantly overhead, and behold it was only our flag, 
they never asked us for any other. We have had a great many Russian and English gentlemen and ladies on board to-day, and the time has passed cheerfully away. They were all happy-spirited people, and I never heard our mother-tongue sound so pleasantly as it did when it fell from those English lips in this far-off land. I talked to the Russians a good deal, just to be friendly, and they talked to me from the same motive. I am sure that both enjoyed the conversation, but never a word of it either of us understood. I did most of my talking to those English people, though, and I am sorry we cannot carry some of them along with us. We have gone whithersoever we chose to-day, and have met with nothing but the kindest attentions. Nobody inquired whether we had any passports or not. Several of the officers of the government have suggested that we take the ship to a little watering-place thirty miles from here, and pay the Emperor of Russia a visit. He is rusticating there. These officers said they would take it upon themselves to ensure us a cordial reception. They said if we would go, they would not only telegraph the Emperor, but send a special courier overland to announce our coming. Our time is so short, though, and more especially our coal is so nearly out, that we judged it best to forego the rare pleasure of holding social intercourse with an Emperor. Ruined Pompeii is in good condition compared to Sebastopol. Here you may look in whatsoever direction you please, and your eye encounters scarcely anything but ruin, ruin, ruin. Fragments of houses, crumbled walls, torn and ragged hills, devastation everywhere. It is as if a mighty earthquake had spent all its terrible forces upon this one little spot. For eighteen long months the storms of war beat upon the helpless town, and left it at last the saddest wreck that ever the sun has looked upon. Not one solitary house escaped unscathed, not one remained habitable even. Such utter and complete ruin one could hardly conceive of. The houses had all been solid, dressed stone structures. Most of them were ploughed through and through by cannon-balls, unroofed and sliced down from eaves to foundation, and now a row of them, half a mile long, looks merely like an endless procession of battered chimneys. No semblance of a house remains in such as these. Some of the larger buildings had corners knocked off, pillars cut in two, cornices smashed, holes driven straight through the walls. Many of these holes are as round and as cleanly cut as if they had been made with an auger. Others are half pierced through, and the clean impression is there in the rock, as smooth and as shapely as if it were done in putty. Here and there a ball still sticks in a wall, and from it iron tears trickle down and discolor the stone. The battlefields were pretty close together. The Malakoff Tower is on a hill which is right in the edge of the town. The Redan was within rifle-shot of the Malakoff. Inkerman was a mile away, and Balaklava removed but an hour's ride. The French trenches, by which they approached and invested the Malakoff, were carried so close under its sloping sides that one might have stood by the Russian guns and tossed a stone into them. Repeatedly, during three terrible days, they swarmed up the little Malakoff hill, and were beaten back with terrible slaughter. Finally they captured the place, and drove the Russians out, who then tried to retreat into the town, but the English had taken the Redan, and shut them off with a wall of flame. There was nothing for them to do but go back and retake the Malakoff, or die under its guns. They did go back. They took the Malakoff, and retook it two or three times. 
but their desperate valor could not avail, and they had to give up at last. These fearful fields, where such tempests of death used to rage, are peaceful enough now. No sound is heard, hardly a living thing moves about them. They are lonely and silent. Their desolation is complete. There was nothing else to do, and so everybody went to hunting relics. They have stocked the ship with them. They brought them from the Malakoff, from the Redan, Inkerman, Balaklava, everywhere. They have brought cannon-balls, broken ramrods, fragments of shell, iron enough to freight a sloop. Some have even brought bones, brought them laboriously from great distances, and were grieved to hear the surgeon pronounce them only bones of mules and oxen. I knew Blucher would not lose an opportunity like this. He brought a sackful on board, and was going for another. I prevailed upon him not to go. He has already turned his stateroom into a museum of worthless trumpery, which he has gathered up in his travels. He is labeling his trophies now. I picked up one a while ago, and found it marked Fragment of a Russian General. I carried it out to get a better light upon it. It was nothing but a couple of teeth, and part of the jawbone of a horse. I said with some asperity, Fragment of a Russian General. This is absurd. Are you never going to learn any sense?" He only said, "'Go slow. The old woman won't know any different.' His aunt. This person gathers mementos with a perfect recklessness nowadays, mixes them all up together, and then serenely labels them without any regard to truth, propriety, or even plausibility. I have found him breaking a stone in two, and labeling half of it chunk busted from the pulpit of Demosthenes, and the other half Darnick from the tomb of Abelard and Heloise. I have known him to gather up a handful of pebbles by the roadside, and bring them on board ship, and label them as coming from twenty celebrated localities five hundred miles apart. I remonstrate against these outrages upon reason and truth, of course, but it does no good. I get the same tranquil, unanswerable reply every time. It don't signify. The old woman won't know any different. Ever since we three or four fortunate ones made the midnight trip to Athens, it has afforded him genuine satisfaction to give everybody in the ship a pebble from the Mars Hill where St. Paul preached. He got all those pebbles on the seashore, abreast the ship, but professes to have gathered them from one of our party. However, it is not of any use for me to expose the deception. It affords him pleasure, and does no harm to anybody. He says he never expects to run out of mementos of St. Paul as long as he is in the reach of a sandbank. Well, he is no worse than others. I notice that all travellers supply deficiencies in their collections in the same way. I shall never have any confidence in such things again while I live. End of chapter 35